today I am uh, continuing on in a series that we've been in called Distortions. I don't know about you, uh, but the Holy Spirit has just been rocking my world uh, through this series. I have been learning so much. The Lord has been teaching me so much and really challenging me uh, to grow as a person, uh, to grow as a Christ follower, as a husband, as a father. And I trust that the Lord's been doing this in your life as well. Over this last several weeks, we've talked about this concept of uh, thought distortions. And maybe some of you, uh, maybe you've been here, maybe you haven't been here. A thought distortion um, is a, an exaggerated pattern of thinking that is not based on facts. And, and consequently, because it's not based on facts, it usually leads you or I uh, to view things more negatively than they really are. Now, thought distortion is not a concept that I've come up with. Actually, uh, psychologists, therapists uh, began to, over time, study people who were dealing with depression and dealing with high levels of anxiety. And what they noticed was there really was an ingrained pattern in people who were crippled through depression or crippled through anxiety. And, and they noticed this pattern that they've labeled as thought distortions, a pattern of thinking in which someone takes uh, maybe a little bit of truth, a little bit of reality, and then they twist it uh, with other thoughts, uh, imaginations, and over time, uh, that twisting of the signal, if you will, between what really is real and what we perceive to be real or what we feel like is real or what's real based on past experiences or past hurt or past pain becomes so real to a person that they become stuck in their own head. They become stuck in their own thinking. And the wonderful thing about Scripture is, is that Scripture speaks to these realities in our lives. We spent a couple of weeks looking at uh, different thought distortions, and then last week we started looking at a particular person in Scripture who was dealing with thought distortions. I'm not going to go through all of them, but we identified 10 particular thought distortions that are very common. Mind reading, uh, shoulds. Uh, people who think, oh, it should be like this or it ought to be like this, um, all or nothing thinking, uh, labeling, filtering, unfavorable comparisons, uh, my favorite one to say, catastrophizing. Everyone say catastrophizing because I don't want to be the only one who feels silly saying a word that really isn't really a word, but we all know it's true, right? Because we all do it and uh, we all know other people who do it, right? Everything's a catastrophe. Well, we've been talking about catastrophizing. We've been talking about personalizing. Everything is about me, uh, blaming, and then making feelings facts. If you haven't been here, really, I would say even if you have, you can always go back to our website or you can go to Podbean or you can go to our app. We hope all of you have downloaded our app. You can find it on the Google Play Store or the Apple Store. It's the best way to stay connected to what's going on at North Place. Uh, on the app, you can download the previous messages. And if you're curious about those uh, 10 thought distortions, if any of them sound like somebody else in your life and you want to make sure they hear about it, because it's not us, right? You can go, and especially the first and second message, I spend a lot of time uh, talking, going into detail about those 
the, those 10 thought distortions. You can always go there, download the message as well. Uh, last week, uh, we, like I said, we talked specifically about an individual in Scripture who was dealing with thought distortion. If you read through 1 Kings chapter 19, which is where we're studying, in 1 Kings chapter 19, we read about a man by the name of Elijah, a great prophet that God used. But if you read 1 Kings 19 through the concept or through the lens of the idea of thought distortions, you can see very, very clearly that he was dealing with several of these thought distortions that we've been talking about. For those of you who weren't here, we said last week that when... When you or I or when an individual is under sustained seasons of threats, our brains are literally rewired. Physically, our brains are rewired when we're under sustained seasons of threat. Just this week, I was uh, reading uh, in the news and commentary and I read several articles about what happened here in KZN a year ago. All of you remember what happened a year ago. And, and it was interesting to read uh, some articles this week talking about how there is this collective wound or scar on the psyche of KZN, especially, especially those of us who live in, in our municipality, based on what happened a year ago and how, and how it seems like for people who are tourists or they come through KZN, they look at what's going on and they think, oh, everything's fine. But if you really live here, if you really know people, if you really get to know people, then you find that a lot of people are still dealing with a lot of repercussions psychologically, physiologically, as a result of the stress, the pressure, the anxiety, the tremendous fear that was felt around our city a year ago and how even after that people are continuing to deal with the repercussions of the trauma of what we experience and then you add to that floods and other things that have happened and a lot of people are still hurting the reality is is that stress and that pressure, that anxiety, that fear rewires our brain. It rewires our responses to circumstances and situations. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I hear a loud noise, whereas I didn't react a certain way before, after a year ago, when I hear a loud noise, I respond differently. Hello, anybody else? I grew up in the south in the united states hunting was a part of our culture i was around gunshots but there's something that changed in me a year ago when i hear a gunshot it's not the same our brains are rewired because of sustained threat and pressure it's something that happens and and we talked about that last week and we we left off our conversation last week talking about elijah because elijah had been under this sustained threat this pressure, this stress that had gone in his life for several years led to this really incredible moment of victory. And then right after this incredible moment of victory, experienced again threat. And we said this, we said, when I am depleted, I am most susceptible to thought distortion. When I am depleted, when I'm running on empty, I am most susceptible 
to thought distortion. Elijah was running on empty in 1 Kings chapter 19. He had been living under stress and pressure for a long period of time. Although he had experienced a great victory, right after the great victory, he was incredibly susceptible to thought distortion and responded to thought distortion, even though he had just experienced a great victory in my life and in your life. We all know that it's true. When we are running on empty, we respond differently. We have a expression in my house. I'm sure it's not common just to my house, but probably yours as well. Have you ever heard the expression hangry? For those of you who you think, was that his accent? What was that word? It's a combination of the word hungry and angry. Hangry. Now, I'm not going to say who in my house in particular. There are certain individuals in my home that if every three or four hours we don't get food into them, they can have a tendency to get, she can get, they can get. I mean, I'm not, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody. Through the years, July 22nd will be 27 years of marriage, by the way. It's coming up soon. That hangriness exists when you're running on empty. It happens to all of us, some more than others, it seems. Right? We all, we all know it. We all know that when I get depleted, when I'm running on empty, physiologically, psychologically, spiritually, I respond in disproportionate ways than I ordinarily would. Can we admit it? When I'm running on empty, when I'm tired, when I'm worn out, when I'm depleted spiritually, things just get out of balance in my life. And in those, in those moments, what tends to happen is that you and I become very susceptible to distortion. Well, we're going to pick up our story from 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to pick up where we left off, where Elijah had, he had responded disproportionately to the threat that he experienced because he had just experienced tremendous victory and now he's threatened again. And now he's responding as if the threat is bigger than the victory that he had experienced. And it was all because he was was running on empty. As we pick up the story, I want us to start with this thought today. See, distortion, distortion is cleared when it is interrogated against truth. See what God done, you, you remember the story, those of you who were last week, God took Elijah to a place where he could rest, where he could take a nap and get some food. Sometimes God says, Randy, you just need to stop and rest. You need to be replenished. That was the first thing we learned last week. I need to be replenished when I'm under a great deal of stress or when I've been depleted. I don't respond out of my out of my stress or my depletion. I don't respond out of my feelings. Instead, I stop, I rest, I allow God to refresh me. Well, when God refreshes me, it's interesting to watch what God does. He takes Elijah to this place of being replenished, and then he takes Elijah to this place in which the threat that he has experienced becomes interrogated by ultimate truth. See, God loved Elijah so much 
He had a plan for his life that he was not content to allow Elijah to be paralyzed, to allow Elijah to be overwhelmed by the threat that had come his way. He was not content to allow Elijah to die at the hand of Jezebel. He was not content to allow the call that he had placed on Elijah's life to be stopped. Instead, God said, Elijah, I still have you in my hand. I love you. I have a purpose and a plan and a destiny for you. See, probably one of the greatest distortions of all is the expectation that a person who is in rebellion against God is also going to define God correctly. Here's what I've learned. When someone is rebelling against God, they're going to do everything they can to minimize him. Let me say that again. When someone is rebelling against God, they're going to do everything they can to minimize him. And you know what they do? When they minimize him, they're going to minimize you. If you go back to the beginning of the series, it's all rooted in what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Everything is rooted in Genesis 3. The need to minimize God to glorify oneself. And so people who are in rebellion are not the kind of people that we listen to. Because people who are in rebellion are going to minimize God. They're going to accuse God. They're going to do everything they can to make God small, thus make you small and make themselves big which is exactly where the threat was coming from in Elijah's life, which is exactly what, what, what thought distortions do. They minimize God, they minimize reality, and they glorify self. 1 Kings chapter 19, listen to what God does when he starts to, he starts to confront Elijah's his thought distortion, his pain, his threat. He starts to, he starts to confront it with truth. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 13. There he went into a cave. Remember, he's, he's gone to Mount Horeb. God says, go take a nap, get some food. There he went into the cave, spent the night. The Lord appears to Elijah, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Wow, if you, if you like underline in your Bible, if you write in your Bible, that's one of those, that's one of those places to underline. That's one of those places to highlight. The Lord is about to pass by. I'm about to show you what's real, Elijah. I'm about to show you what someone should really be scared of. I'm about to show you might. I'm about to show you power. I'm about to show you authority. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Have you ever come to one of those places in your life? where you say, what, what, what is going on here? What am I doing here? Why am I in this situation? 
Why do I think these things? Why do I experience these things? Why is my, why is my job like this? Why is my marriage like, why is life, how in the world has life brought me to a cave way over here? Why am I tired? Why am I hungry? Why am I all by myself? Why am I, how did I get here? How did it end up? Am I the only one that ever has those moments? What is going on? What are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why, why are you here? Why are you on the backside? Why are you the backside of this down a mountain? What are you doing here, Elijah? We all find ourselves. And see, here's what, here's the thing is just distortion. We started the series this way. Distortion drives us to caves. It drives us away from relationship, away from purpose, away from destiny, away from relationship, away from connectivity to what we're, it drives us to the place where we're like, what, what am I doing here? And that's exactly where Elijah found him. I know that I have certainly found myself in those places. I, I told you last week uh, that I was, that, that was going to share uh, something personal and intimate with you um, and a way that Desert and I have been dealing with being triggered um, recently, um, I'm going to try to make this long story short. Um, about 20 years ago, over I guess over 20 years ago now, Desiree and I planted our very first church. Uh, we, we've been in ministry for our entire married life. I, in fact, I was a youth pastor when Desiree and I got married, so we've been in ministry over 27 years. Uh, but we planted our very first church 20 years ago. And uh, man, what a what a story! What an incredible story! And God, that church is doing incredible things in the city where it is now, and we thank God for that. Um, and uh, so we had that experience 20 years ago. And when you live through an experience like that, it certainly marks your life. And and here we are uh, here at North Place, and wow, look at what God has done. Uh, most of you are aware this church is is now four years, I think, four years and five months old now. So um, probably a month or two ago, uh, Desert and I were, um, we were talking about something, and, and look, I, I need you to understand something, I know a lot of people, uh, perhaps you look at the life of a pastor, and you see maybe them on stage, or you, you think, wow, what a, what a, what a, what an awesome life, what a cool life, what a, how great it would be to be a pastor, and, and the truth is that we, we, we absolutely love our lives outside of serving each other, serving our children and our family. Our greatest joy is is pastoring and serving you. We love the local church. Um, I believe the Bible teaches very clearly the hope of the world is the local church. That is the manifestation of Jesus in the earth right now. I believe in the local church and love serving the local church. But um, the truth is, it's it's not all uh, sunshine and flowers and cupcakes. Just like your life and your job and whatever it is that you do, there there are challenges. There there are there are a few challenges sometimes. And um, twenty years ago, we planted our first church, and when it, when that church got to around its fifth birthday, the fifth year of the church, um, I, I don't know if Desiree would agree with this or not, but probably probably for me at least, the hardest most difficult year of my life was the fifth year of that church. So that would have been around 15 years ago. Uh, a lot of things happened in that fifth year. It was 
it was very, 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 very hard. Now, now part of the problem was me. I was very young, first time to plant a church, first time to be the lead leader, and uh, I made lots of mistakes, and those mistakes happen, and everybody does that. I still make mistakes to this day, right? So part of the problems during that time were just stupid mistakes I made. Part, part of the problem uh, in, in that time was there was a season in that church's existence um, where we grew really fast, a bunch of people really fast. And so a bunch of people came in really fast, which meant that the honeymoon stage ended for a lot of people all at one time. Now, you may not be aware of this, but like any other relationship, when people come to a church, there's a honeymoon stage. When people come through the door, they come through, and they're either like, oh, oh, this place is terrible. I don't like that guy. His accent irritates me. Uh, I don't like the way they do worship, I don't, and so I'm not going to come back here. And that's, that's okay, I mean, because every church isn't for every person. And that's a portion of people. But then there's another portion of people who come, and they come in, they're like, oh, this place is, this place is great. And, and they, they come to be a part of the church. And there's a honeymoon stage. And just like when a new couple gets married, you know, in that honeymoon stage, everything is okay. And it's, it's easy to overlook everything you don't like because it's the honeymoon stage. Hello? All right? And so there are, that happens for people when they come to a new church, just like every other relationship. And what had happened was we had grown really fast during a certain season. And so a whole big group of people got through their honeymoon stage at around the same time. And then all of a sudden, all the, all the warts and complexion problems and tone of voice and not putting the seat down on the red. You know, all the things that start to get on your nerves all of a sudden started adding up, but it started adding up for a lot of people at the same time. And when, a, when the honeymoon stage is over, uh, people have to decide. They have to decide, am I going to accept things that I don't like about this place, but I'm, I'm married, I'm here, I'm going to stay here, and I'm just going to, because I love this person and I know they love me, we're going to keep doing life together, or am I going to go? Well, any time that people get through the honeymoon stage, sometimes people go. Well, there was a whole group of people got through the honeymoon stage, and they said, all right. I'm going to get out of here. So there's that group of people. That's a natural flow. Those of us in ministry, we know that. People go through honeymoon stage. It's really okay. It doesn't, it hurts your feelings a little bit, but it's life, right? But then there are also, um, then there are also people who, when you, when you are in ministry, there are people who come to be a part of a church and, uh, and they decide that it is their mission, that they have been called by God to come to that church and to change certain things about it. Right? If Pastor Andy just knew that if he would hold up one leg and put his hand on people this way when he prayed for them, that the anointing would flow and revival would break out. Or if he was just aware of this theological truth, or if Desiree would just sing this song, then everything would be better. And there's always people who are like that. Just like whatever business you're in or whatever, there's always people who know better than you, right? Are we all okay with this? Am I making you nervous? It's just a reality. There are always people who, who have some revelation that we don't have or whatever. And that, that's a part. And so what happened was at that five-year mark, I told you I'd make this long story short. I, I was still young and growing as a leader. A bunch of people got through the honeymoon stage. And then there was a group of people who had been, you know, they'd just been waiting for the right opportunity to fix, all, to fix me, 
right, and to fix the church. And all of that sort of converged at year five, all at one time. And so it was the year from hell, like literally. I'm not cursing. I mean, it literally was the year from hell for us. Um, I, I didn't have language for it back then. I wouldn't have known how to describe it. But I, now knowing what I know, several times during that year, I had panic attacks. I didn't even know what panic attacks were back then. I had no language for it. But I literally was completely breaking down. And it just, it just destroyed me. I didn't understand. I was just trying to love people. I was just trying to serve people. And for all, all the stuff that I get wrong and that I do wrong, one thing is true. I love people. And I loved those people. And I couldn't understand it. And, and during that time, I mean, it was just pounding after pounding after pounding for an entire year five. Now, life went on. Things got better. We, we stayed there a few more years before God called us to Africa. God grew that church. We grew past that season. And to this day, that church is doing incredible things for Jesus. But year five just about did us in. It, it certainly just about did me in. And to this day, to this day, there are certain things that happen. If I hear certain names, I'm just being honest with you. It, it, it triggers something inside of me. If I make certain mistakes, it just triggers certain things inside of me. So it was just a bad, bad year. Well, here we are all these years later, 15 years later, and we're at this time probably four years and a couple of months into North Place. And I don't even remember what happened, but something happened. Uh, either I made a mistake or somebody didn't like something I did or somebody decided they weren't. Something, I don't even remember what it was. But one of us flippantly said, well, you know what happens at year five? And we're coming up on year five, so we might as well prepare ourselves. Now, at that point, we're probably four years and two months into this thing. We're still ten months from year five. But the joke, and it was literally said as a joke, and we laughed, all of a sudden stuck. And since that time, every mistake that I've made, every, and I make them all the time, guys, listen. Every time that it feels like, oh man, maybe I, maybe I upset that person, or I said something wrong, or I, Every time it seems like, well, they've been missing for a while. Maybe they're not coming back. The honeymoon's over. We have found ourselves moving from a joke, a funny moment, to having serious conversations about, well, year five's coming. You may say, Pastor, why are, you, why are you telling us that story? I'm telling you that story because I want you to understand the way that thought distortions work. I want you to understand how awfulizing works, how personalizing works. I want you to understand how you end up in a cave somewhere saying, what am I doing here? Things were awesome. Look at what God is doing. Now, folks, there's no way to deny the hand of God on North Place Church. 
I mean, you look at where we are four years and four months into this thing. God has done this. And here's the truth. He's done this in spite of us. He's done this through a global pandemic when we were shut down four times, literally told you can't meet four times. He's provided a building for us during a global pandemic and an economic meltdown. Over the last year, I don't know if you remember what this building looked like a year ago, but I do. God did all of this. There's no way to deny his hand at work. There's no way to deny what he's doing. People's lives have been changed and transformed. And there's this, there's this fire and there's this, there is this altar experience. There's this, there's this moment in which God is doing incredible things like 1 Kings chapter 18. That is absolutely undeniable. But one little Jezebel says, I don't like you. Says, you don't pray right. It says, I'm not sure this church is the one for me. And all of a sudden, I find myself crawling into the back of a cave, thinking to myself, here comes year five. More than half a year away, and I'm already declaring it over myself. What started as a passing joke, all of a sudden now becomes something that is determining my mindset that is determining the way that I respond to people, is determining the way I filter everything anyone says to me. Some of you over the last couple of months have come up to me and said the kindest things, but I couldn't even hear you because I was worried about year five. Some of you took a couple of weeks on vacation and I on the inside am dying because I think you're abandoning me. Is it okay that I'm just being honest with you? Some of you just needed a week off. Some of you were hanging out with your family. Some of you were getting rest and taking a nap. And I'm dying on the inside. And it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with ghosts from my pasts. It has to do with Jezebels who were never, ever, ever going to follow Jesus anyways. No matter how much I loved them, no matter how much I served them, no matter how much I tried to help them, they were never going to surrender to Jesus. They weren't going to do it 15 years ago. They're not going to do it today. And no matter how much I tried to make it happen, there's a window waiting for them somewhere. And I can't change that because they're in rebellion. But I'm determining my relationship with you based on that broken person. sure hate it if I have to go to church somewhere else because I, I know, you know, I know the church budget is, is a burden on you and if I have to go somewhere else then my tithe and offering, you know, it would have to go with me and, and then it might, it might be hard for you pastor to make the church budget. When you have those kinds of things said to you, when people try to manipulate you, into doing what they want you to do, playing the song they want you to play, praying the way they want you to pray, preaching the way they want you to preach, coming and paying them special attention while you ignore everybody else because they're in the room and they're a Jezebel. When that happens to you, it marks you. 
it echoes in your head and in your mind and your heart. But you know what God does when, when that Jezebel had that conversation with me? I've debated whether or not to even tell you this. When that Jezebel waved her $20,000 check in front of my face to tell me that's what was going to walk out the door if I didn't do what she wanted me to do, whether I'd be able to pay my staff, take care of them, run the church, do missions work. Pastor, I know how much you love Africa. I know how much you love serving Swaziland. It would be a shame if we couldn't send that container. It happened, folks. I would hate to have to give this offering somewhere else. See, here's, here's what God does. Two weeks later, from the time she walked out the door, another $20,000 check came in the door. I, it, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it was a lot of money. But see, here's the thing. When God shows up to confront a lie with truth, he shows you who's in power. He shows you that he's got it. And that's exactly what he did for me 15 years ago. And yet 15 years later, now no one has done that to me, I promise you. I would be very happy if any of you wanted to bring a 20,000 rand check. That'd be awesome. But my, my point is, 15 years later, those things, you know what I was, you know, you know what was messing with me? was not the miracle that God did two weeks later. It was the threat from 15 years ago. And, and God says, Elijah, what are you focused on? Are you focused on the threat? Are you focused on the one who is the God over those who might threaten you? So God says, Elijah, let me show you how powerful I am. She can threaten you, but let me show you who has might. Let me show you who has power. Let me show you has authority. Compare. Confront your distortion. Confront your brokenness. Confront your fear with ultimate truth. God says it to him again. Elijah, what are you doing here? 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. He replied, Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He's sticking to his story. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. Never mind the fact that they had just repented and returned to the Lord the chapter before. Did you read chapter 18? They had seen God's power and the Israelites had returned to God. They had killed the prophets of Baal. They had said, we're going to follow you, Elijah. They had just repented. But now when he's in the cave, after he's been threatened by the one Jezebel, all of a sudden, all of Israel is still rejecting God. He had forgotten the miracle that happened two weeks later. Are you hearing me? See, this is what distortion does to you. It takes a little bit of truth and it twists it to reinforce your story that everything is against you. It leaves out the revival. It leaves out the miracle. It leaves out what God has done on your behalf. It leaves out what God, are you hearing me? It leaves out what God has done on your behalf. 
because it's got to reinforce the catastrophe. It's got to reinforce the neural pathway that says that your world is collapsing around you. It's got to reinforce that year five is coming in spite of what God is doing. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they, notice the word they, now they are trying to kill me too. Remember chapter 19 didn't start with they trying to kill him. It was Jezebel who said she was going to kill him. But now it's a they. Now it's the whole world is against me. I'm all by myself. No one cares about me. No one loves me. No one appreciates me. No one knows what I'm going through. My whole world is crashing down. You see, distortion mixes part of reality with half the truth to concoct its own tragic fantasy. And the reality is, is that is where many of us live, mixing part of the truth Mixing part of reality with part of the truth to concoct this story that reinforces my stress, that reinforces my anxiety, that reinforces my belief that everything is against me, that year five is coming, that it's going to happen just the same. This is the way my, my last husband acted before he cheated on me. So now this guy is acting this way, so certainly he's going to cheat on me also. This is what happened. This is how my boss treated me. I know this boss, he's such a jerk. He doesn't understand. I tried to explain to him. That the reason I was late for work was because uh, because transport had a problem. I couldn't help it. And now he's not listening to me and he's going to write me up. And now he's going to have it out for me. And I know he's going to give me a bad assignment because he's written me up and he has it out for me. And then I'm going to get this assignment and I can't perform this assignment because he's going to give me one that he knows is impossible. And he's just setting me up because after he's given me a bad assignment, then he's going to write me off and then he's going to dismiss me. And next week I won't even have a job because that's exactly what happened last time and I won't have a job I can't pay school fees can't feed my kids I know what's coming so you know what I'm going to do I'm going to go in there and tell him off right now you know what I'm going to do I'm going to show him how much he needs me So I'm going to passive-aggressively undermine the rest of my, the people that I work with because they're going, to, they're going to know how important I am around this place. If they're going to fire me, I'm going to go out with a bang. Talk about fire from heaven. I'm about to bring the fire. <laughs> and I'm like a crazy person in a cave talking to myself, concocting a story. That then I live out. Some of us just got to stop being crazy. I love you. Some of us just need to stop being crazy. We need to stop talking to ourselves in caves, making up stories about how the world is against us and how it's going to turn out just the way it was the last time. You don't know that. I don't know that. I'm creating the story. Oh, yeah, it hasn't just happened to me once. It happened to me twice. It's happened to me three times. Could there be a reason it's happened to you three times? 
Is it possible that it's not just they and them? It might be you. Is it possible that it could have something to do with my attitude and my actions and my behaviors and me not taking a different combi to work? Because that one's always late on Tuesday. Is it, is it possible? But no, I'd rather hunker in a cave and draw stick figures, create my diagram of how I'm going to burn this place down if they're taking me down. Listen, I, we're laughing, I'm joking, but guys, this comes from a place of hurt and pain in my life and my own observation of my own patterns. It comes from the last couple of months in my life where I've been living, I've been living a lie. I've been living under pain and hurt about something that's coming seven months from now. And you're not even the same people. I'm not even the same person. This certainly isn't the same place. And that woman doesn't live here. <laughs> Amen to that. I, I Seriously, I... I know that I'm being a little bit funny, but but it's coming from a, a real place in my life where I've seen I've seen me repeat a, a pattern, and I've begun to ingrain a mindset that says, "Oh, year five's coming. That's why that's happening. This is why that, that's why they're behaving that. That's why I haven't seen them for a while." And it's just not true. See, overcome. You and I must overcome the paralysis of distortion by returning to the place of clarity. Listen, listen, what does God do with Elijah? He says, Elijah, tell me again, why are you here? Tell me again, what's going on in your life? You see me, right? You see my might. You see my power. You see my ability to provide, right? You see my incredible capacity as God in light of this one woman. Now, in, in light of this comparison, me being God and her being Jezebel, in light of that, tell me again why you're here. And, and of course, Elijah tells his story that's twisted. It's taken bits and pieces, and it's built this tale of tragedy, which he is the center, which he is the victim. And in that place, God doesn't look at Elijah and say, Elijah, you're pathetic, you're ridiculous. no. I love how God responds to Elijah. He doesn't tell him how stupid he is or how bad he is for feeling that way. He doesn't tell him how ridiculous he is for feeling that way. Instead, he says, let's clarify some things, Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. Then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Again, this is another one of those places you need to underline in your Bible. Some of us need to highlight it. Go back the way you came. Go back to where there was clarity. Go back to where you knew what you were doing. Go back to where you started. 
Go back to where things became distorted, Elijah. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Saphat from Abel, Mihlo to succeed you as prophet Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him in other words God says to Elijah go back to where you were when things got twisted go back to where things were clear to you go back to where you had direction go back to where you knew what you were doing and you knew who you were go back to when things were clear to you and start doing the things that I had already called you to do I'm not finished with you yet I'm going to use you I'm going to raise up others after you what I'm doing in your life is bigger than you it's greater than you it's beyond you so I'm going to bring others behind you to complete what you were never created to complete what you were only created to start you're judging yourself by a standard that I'm not judging you by I started this process with you but I'm going to finish this process in others see many of us live under the distortion of judging ourselves against a standard that God never judged us against I look back on that church that we started 20 years ago and there are times that I weep and I mourn because I'm not there and there are times that I feel like a failure because I'm not there I'm judging myself against a standard that God had never called me to that church is still there it's doing incredible things far greater things than I could ever do and yet I want to weep and mourn and feel like a failure because I'm not there doing what God never called me to complete Instead, God says, go back to where I called you and get busy doing what I've called you to do. Judge yourself and your life and your steps by what I have ordained, not by the standards that you've established for yourself, not by the lies of the enemy, not according, not according to success that I never determined for you. Go back to when things were clear and just do that. There are many of you in this room, I love you, I know you, you've told me your story, God has called you to things, there's ministry that God has placed in your heart, there's things that you have told me, God called me to do this, I went to this Bible school, I was a part of this prayer ministry, I did this thing. Some of you need to hear God say to you, go back. Go back and pick up those things that you let go of somewhere because of some Jezebel who had no business defining you because she's broken and she's never going to be fixed. Some of us gave up on calling, we gave up on gifting, we gave up on pathways because we faced resistance that we couldn't fix and we thought it was our fault. God says it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Go back to when things were clear and do those things that were clear to you, those simple things. Go back to that desert and just walk that path. God says, I'm bigger than the threat you feel. I'm God. Jezebel's not. I'm bigger than your fear. I'm bigger than your anxiety. I'm bigger than your ex-spouse, your ex-boss. I'm bigger than your temporary pain and your situation that you feel like is overwhelming. I am God. I've shown up in the past. I'll show up in the future. 
I'll be there when you're successful. I'll be there when you're failing. I'm still God, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. My will will be done. My church will be built. My business that I put in your heart, I will create. The ministry that I have written on the tablets of your heart, that ministry is going to go forth. I'm going to raise up an Elisha. I'm going to raise up a Jehu. I'm going to raise up others. This thing that I started will be completed. Now, are you going to be a part of it or not? Are you going to live in your distortion, in your stage, are you in your cave? Are you going to keep drawing stick figures? Are you going to keep being crazy? Are you going to get on the path that I've called you to? It's your call. It's your decision. It's your choice. Are you going to live in reality? Are you going to live in this distorted story, this dystopian tale of woe and pain and hurt and heartache? You're not dead, so I'm not done with you. I didn't tell them to sing that song, but they did. I think it's because the Lord kind of puts stuff together on Sunday. You're not dead, Elijah. You want to curl up and die. You want to say, I might as well be dead because I'm such a failure. And God says, you're not dead, Elijah. Stop speaking death over yourself. Instead, get busy and do what it is that I've called you to do. Elijah, you're not alone. Paul, everybody's dead but me. No, everybody's not dead but you. The whole world isn't riding on your shoulders. Listen, friend. You need to hear this. The whole world is not riding on your shoulders. Distortion always drives us to the place where we're the hero of the story. And it's all dependent, it all rises and falls on me. Lord, just take me out, it's all over. No, Elijah, I've got thousands that haven't bowed their knee. They haven't, they haven't kissed Bell. It's not all dependent upon you. I'm inviting you to be a part of this. I've still got a place for you in this. If you'll go back to what is clear and what is simple and what is obvious and what is true, then you can join me. You can join me. Or you can keep living in your distortion. What, what are you going to choose? See, when my distortion is weighed in the light of God's truth, things become clear and obvious, and it always calls me to clarity. And clarity always calls me to continue to do those things which God has already said.